Good morning, everyone. I'd like to invite you to turn to John chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. The scripture will be on the screen as well, uh, but if you have a Bible that you use personally, I welcome you to turn there so that you're able to engage with it as we go this morning. We're going through an interesting month, a month in which we're coming out of the school year, wrapping up, but we're going into a time of, of summer, which has all of us, you know, various ministry projects and opportunities, but then it's also a time in which we're recalibrating and we're considering what the fall and what the near future would look like. I think each of us use the summer to some extent to have that type of retooling and reconsideration. And so as we're here today, we find that the ministry of Jesus also takes a turn, a very major significant turn to go from one in which he was perhaps on some levels doing things that some people saw, but not everyone did. But starting from the end of chapter 11, when he healed Lazarus, we are starting now to see his ministry become very public. Crowds are gathering, people are following, and there's ways in which you can sense that there's going to be this culmination of Christ's ministry that is always meant to be the reason why he came into the world in the first place. And so the context of what we're looking at today in the beginning of chapter 12, verse 12, is that right before this, we know that Jesus had raised Lazarus from dead, dead, not just a little dead, very dead, official dead, four days in the body. That's by cultural, by custom, the absolute minimum to be able to say, yes, that person is declared dead. And he has gone ahead and done that and healed Lazarus and raised him from the dead. This was a supernatural miracle. There is no way that this could have been a trick. And along the way then, people are starting to become divided. You know, we saw a sacrificial devotion by Mary who gave everything that she had and was not caring about what people thought of her and wanting to be near Jesus and wanting to sacrifice and to give of herself to Christ and what was important and valuable to her. But we also see that the wheels are turning with the Pharisees and the religious leaders that did not like Jesus already and now hate him even more because what he has done truly cannot be explained by anything that they have to offer. And so what comes next in today's passage then is a complete open outing public declaration of who Christ is. And how we're going to see then this passage engages with us then is how do people receive what Jesus says and does? And how does that reflect their expectations? But then let's bring it back around then to, okay, well, it's important to know maybe what different people think, but what does Jesus think about the fact that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that he is the Messiah? What does that mean then if he is the King and that you are his subjects and that you are his followers? So let me go ahead and turn to the next slide here. The first point is looking at Jesus as the king of the Jews. Let me go ahead and read, starting from verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You know, this particular incident, this story is in all four gospels. This is markedly the public entrance 
tying everything together that Jesus has done and now placing him into the public sphere officially. It is often called the triumphal entry, and there's a reason for this, that every single gospel makes a highlight of this and goes into detail about it. On one hand, you see that this is a complete human spectacle, right? This is huge. Whoever this guy is that's coming in through the doors, he is receiving the fanfare of all of these Jewish people. It is palm branches, which is a sign of welcoming royalty. It is cloaks on the floor, which is a way of submission and showing humility to the person that is walking in. This person is important. This person is coming in as a victor. This person is coming in to ascend into his proper place, perhaps a throne, which is why the connection to the king of Israel, that this, in terms of what people are seeing and what people are doing, is fitting of such an important individual. Now, the expectation then for the Jewish people, especially as they're under Roman occupation, is that if he is the king of Israel, then he is going to come and set all of the Jewish people free from Roman oppression and Roman rule. And so clearly, he is somebody that is worthy of honoring, of submission, and of humility. But beyond just the fact that this was a human spectacle, this event also marked a theological milestone. Why? Because Jesus indeed is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Who should be coming through these gates? Truly, the king of Israel should be coming through these gates. The one that is the son of David, who will sit on the throne forever, as God had promised David. This is then the descendant in the flesh, but also is the son of God, who is coming through these gates. And so this Messiah will be the one who reigns as the king of Israel. Now, interestingly enough, there's been the case many times in which Jesus has not assumed that type of role in publicity officially. You find in the book of Mark that a lot of times he wanted people to be quiet and say nothing about the miracles and the things that he was doing and saying, and this was in the early parts of his ministry. Even in the Gospel of John, there was mentioned that Jesus said, no, it's not my time yet. It is not the hour. It is not his time to be outed in public for who he is and what he came to do. But in this instance, you find that Jesus does not deny, nor does he push back the publicity at all, because this is truly his time. His time to enter into Jerusalem has come, and Jesus accepts and welcomes the praise and the adoration. You find, in fact, in Luke's mention of this, Jesus said, I tell you, he's talking to the crowd, if these were silent as in the crowd, the very stones would cry out. So this was his time. Now, we are in the midst of the July 4th weekend, and we certainly have cultural practices. Some of you guys maybe are watching fireworks. Some of you guys are maybe lighting fireworks. There are certainly barbecues at times and, you know, red, white, and blue clothes that sometimes people wear, different parades in different areas. Well, when it relates to someone that is in the category of a king coming into a city, Pastor Matt Carter describes it in this way for that time. When political figures came to Jerusalem, every aspect of their entrance was choreographed to demonstrate power and authority. Their entrance was announced by trumpets. They were preceded by soldiers in full military regalia. Finally, they made their entrance riding on a brilliant white stallion or in a gleaming gold chariot 
pulled by magnificent horses. Okay, well, if we were to look at that passage a little bit carefully, there was some differences. There were some missing things. And I want to highlight to you a couple of passages from the Old Testament that fills out our understanding a little bit more. So certainly the king of Israel, who Jesus is coming to fulfill and be that figure, he is a mighty savior, a deliverer, and a liberator who is worthy of praise. When people grabbed palm tree leaves and when people laid their jackets on the floor, Jesus was worthy of that. And the reason why is because you find this passage in Psalm 118, 25 to 26, as it refers to this Messiah, the son of David, who would be the king of Israel. People cry out to him, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The king of Israel is deserving of all of the hopes and the expectations of liberation and of good rule. This king of Israel, Matthew identifies in this incident as the prophet Jesus from the Nazareth of Galilee. So there's a coming together in which the crowd were expecting Jesus then to be this figure. But here's the difference, and you'll find this mentioned in Zechariah 9, verse 9, as it refers to this coming leader and ruler and savior. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this description is very different from the type of victory parade coming in mighty chariots with tons of soldiers and horses leading the way, all kinds of pomp and circumstance. This is directing certainly to a king who is worthy of all of the trust and the adoration and the praise and the submission of his subjects. But God had always intended for this king to be a humble king. That what he brings is salvation, but it is not a salvation that could be garnered primarily by military might. It is a salvation that comes even as he comes in in this prophecy on an animal of peace. What he is riding in is not very threatening at all. You play with donkeys and cults in petting zoos. This is not an animal by which a mighty warrior or soldier or general or leader that would rival the Roman rulers of that time would be caught dead and sitting on. But yet the people cheered because this was God's will. That the leader, that the savior, that the king, that God would send would be primarily a humble servant because What he is called to conquer and to be victor over is not primarily physical, but it is deeper. It is our greatest problem. It is our spiritual vacuum, our rebellion and our sin, which begins in our heart. So he did not need to come in with a mighty animal. He just needed to come in because he is God's chosen and he needs to come in to his people. 
Well, if we go on to verses 16 through 19, you find that there's some commentary here on specific people then that are observing us, that are watching this, and we get to see a little bit of insight as to how they are understanding it. So starting from verse 16, John writes, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things have been written about him and have been done to him. Jesus' followers, those that were closest to him, they were part of the pop and circumstance, but they didn't understand until much later. And the key point here is glorified, which we will come back to. But this idea of glorification of Christ receiving honor and glory is actually in reference to his crucifixion, which is shameful and sad and scary. But that's what glorified is pointing to the death of Christ on the cross a few days from this entrance. So his disciples didn't fully understand until later. And we'll come back to that. Now, verse 17 and 18 points out another crowd. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the same people that caught wind of Jesus' amazing miracle of raising someone from absolute deadness in every way, they're still around. Whether they're around for the right reasons or wanting to know more about who this Jesus is or they're around for the spectacle, I could understand both. It's not every day that someone raises someone else from the dead and he is still in the midst of those people. And so this crowd, a growing crowd, are gathered around And some want to just be near him, and certainly some want to meet him and know him. There's a third group of people in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, they're constantly conferring with each other. They're looking at Jesus, and he is just a thorn to them. Everything he says and does increasingly diminishes their authority and platform and respect. And so they're looking at him. They recognize that he has taken their religious and political clout away altogether. Everyone is going to Jesus, they say. And certainly as he's coming in to Jerusalem, his influence is at the greatest point. And in fact, we are seeing the turning point as we enter into Holy Week. And so you find these three groups of people that are near and around Jesus, and they have their various motivations. But let's keep them in mind, because we might find ourselves amongst those three somewhere that we're in there as well. So Jesus is clearly, in the opening passage here, the King of the Jews. He is the promised Messiah, the promised Son of David, who is now entering in a formal and public way to assume his rightful responsibilities and reign. People don't know what that means, but they are acknowledging him in a very public way. Now we also want to see how Jesus is the king of the Gentiles. Starting from verse 20, John says this, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now Greeks is kind of a broad umbrella term. So you have the Jews who are people of Israel by the covenants, and then you have everyone else. And the Bible usually calls them by different words, but Greeks is certainly one of them in the New Testament. That when they're the Greeks, they're broadly 
the Gentiles as well. And it contrasts them with the Jews. You have the Jews and the Greeks. You have the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, these particular Greeks, they were in town because they were wanting to either know more or actually attempting and desiring to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is Passover after all. Now, they were only able to get so far, whether it's temple worship or near the proximity or specific things that they can do as people who were not Jews, but there were certainly what the scholars call them God-fearers, these Gentile people who had interest or who had desire or who had familiarity with Yahweh and wanted to worship him or to know him or to be near the practice and the religion. So there's no way that then these group of people would have missed this giant hoopla of all of these Jews putting their branches and putting their cloaks in front of this man and calling him, declaring him the king, the son of David. Oh, who is the son of David? I mean, I find your God very interesting. Who is this that then you guys are saying is king? They certainly wanted to know who he was. And then you go to verse 21. It comes down to a couple of individuals. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Specific names are mentioned. These then are the God-fearers and the Gentiles that were willing to take a step towards Jesus and his, group, and his crew and just to be able to know more about Jesus and be able to make a personal connection. Now, if you're thinking from the perspective of a Gentile or a Greek who is exposed to Roman rule and authority and domination, it must be in the back of your mind in which you're thinking, wait, who is this king of the Jews, king of Israel, and is he possibly greater than the ruler over me, over us, over this empire. Who is this? Because after all, I am interested in their God in the first place. Who is their king? And so Philip and Andrew wanted to know. We don't know their motives, but we also know that Jesus never really talked to them. This is what happened instead in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And so Jesus never engaged with these Greeks. He told Philip and Andrew this answer, that now is not the time to speak to these Greeks, but that he was about to go towards something, ascending towards glory, which again we saw earlier is related to his crucifixion. Jesus' response deflected the request, but then it also included them then, in that Jesus' Impending glory is one that mattered to the Greeks as well. That he needed to go forth, obey God, accomplish God's will, because how he will be glorified is going to impact both the Jews and the Greeks. And so he is moving ahead. You know, in the Gospel of John, as I mentioned, there there were points in which he said, no, this is not the time yet. It is not my hour yet. But right here, he says, my hour is now. So this is the most important now. That yes, what I'm going to do relates to the Greeks. And you will find out shortly. You know, the connection in terms of how John was written, if you recall, from the end of the book, where John states his purpose, is that this book was written 
So people who hear it and read it would believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and then believing in him, have eternal life. And that statement was made broadly to all who would receive it. And you see it here, that it relates, yes, to the Jews as the king of Israel, but it relates to the Greeks as well. Because what Jesus will proceed to do in a matter of days is the fulfillment of his mission, but also the fulfillment of our greatest need in being saved from the punishment of our sin and to be reconciled to God the Father. Jesus, is he the king of the Jews or is he the king of the Gentiles? The answer is yes. He is both. What he decided to do and what he intended to do through his words and his actions was to point the readers and to point us to understanding that Jesus is the king, but he's the king of a greater and grander kingdom. One for which if you were only seeing it through the lens of a Jewish person with his or her expectations, that's not enough. If you were seeing it from the worldview of a Gentile and world domination and mighty rulers and empires, that's not enough. Jesus was a new type of king who was primarily not desiring to win politically or militaristically. He was the type of king that would usher in a kingdom that is spiritual and forever. And with that, I want us to look at point number three, that Jesus is the king forever. Verses 24 to 26, you find a few contrasts, um, three in particular. Three contrasts of what Jesus says are qualities of his ministry, are descriptions of his kingdom, are the attitudes and the priorities of those who belong to him. They're paired up in contrasts. And the reason why is because the kingdom of the world is in contrast to the kingdom of the Christ. They're not the same. And it's important that he makes that clear for us. You know, as we're looking at this particular event, the triumphal entry, you realize that through Jesus' words and hints that this is far from the last thing. This is not his final work, right? It wasn't that he got a great, significant, amazing welcome and his work was done. No, his work as a king was going to be finished on a cross. This was a part of his recognition and his ministry, and it made very public God's redemptive plan being fulfilled in his Messiah, the King of Kings, but this is not where it ended in terms of where the victory was won. We celebrate July 4th, which marks July 4th, 1776, Independence Day. But Independence Day was far from the beginnings of our nation, right? Independence Day was where a bunch of people got together and said, you know what? We declare that we no longer want to be under the rule and the authority and subjection of England. They made a document, okay? But you realize that after that, there was actually a lot of work that took place. You know, for a while, there were 13 loosely confederated colonies for like more than 10 years. They weren't all getting along. They didn't think as one. They just didn't like England. 
So they wanted to be free, but then they were loosely confederated. It wasn't until 1789, when there was a constitution that was passed and a president in George Washington. And then you could say, we have a country, we have a leader, but along the way, there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of hardship. There was a lot of disagreement. And books and musicals are written about that time. The triumphant entry was the public acknowledgement and adoration of the king of Israel, the king of the Greeks, who will come in and establish his kingdom as the son of God. But it was far from the last thing because the last thing is one in which you will find the king on a cross. You will find the king fulfilling the prophecy and expectation of being a humble servant who is not paid attention to by anybody because there was nothing outstanding or beautiful about him. Death on a cross was a lonely, shameful, dirty, and criminal act. But that was the reason why Jesus came. Now, we're reminded, right, that even his disciples, when Jesus came in, didn't know what was going on until later. But he gives a preview here in verses 24 through 26. He gives a preview of what he's going to do and how he's going to do it because he tells you the why as it relates to his kingdom and what it means that he is the eternal ruler. Starting in verse 24, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what's the contrast here? In order to flourish and be productive and be fruitful, one has to die. What is good calls for death. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If everything you have and desire and want and love and hold is directly connected to the hopes and the timeline of your earthly life, which could be taken away from any of us at any time because it is not in our control, we are holding on to something that will perish at the expense of a life that will last forever. There's a contrast between a temporal earthly life and an eternal heavenly life. They're not the same. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So if you want to be in the kingdom of Christ, if you want to follow Jesus as king, it calls you to serve and it calls you to sacrifice. Because ultimately, who you're trying to grow close to is the one that you're trying to live for. So it ties together. You can't say, I'm going to follow Jesus, but then I'm going to do everything that is opposite of what would please him. Those are contrasts. Those are not the same. 
service needs to be towards Jesus. There's a lot of service that we do that's in Christ's name that's not even towards Jesus in terms of our affections and our priorities, but those need to align. That if you are seeking to be near Jesus, the call is to serve and to follow Jesus, and then you're able to truly live. You know, the amazing part is at the end of verse 26, where it says that if you're near to Jesus, that the Father will honor you. I don't know that we often think of that kind of privilege as it relates to us. But see, when it's connected to his son, his chosen one, then as he loves his son, he loves us too. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, that's a lot for any of us to pursue or to be expected of us. And that's the point. You know, Jesus did not teach this because he was a moral teacher. And he's telling you, here's a better way to live so that you'll get more blessings in this life. Jesus is giving a preview of what he is about to do in a matter of days. He is about to die, literally, so that you who repent and believe and put your faith in him will have a new heart and as the Holy Spirit works and brings life to you, you will bear fruit in likeness of your Savior and your King. But he's going to go first. He's going to die first. He doesn't expect people to just do this on their own. You're not the Savior. You're not the King. He's going to go first. Jesus Although the victorious king, which he does not refute or deny, he's not going to come in and just soak up and just eat up all of the fame and the adoration and be like, oh, look at me, it's all about me. No, he's going to come in and he's going to be on a humble animal. And he's going to draw attention, but it's not going to be because people think that in this earthly life that there is something to gain from him. By coming in and fulfilling this prophecy, culturally, he's losing his life. It's embarrassing. That's not a kingly entrance. But that's not why he came. He didn't come so that everyone would think how great he is. He knows who he is. And so even when he dies then on the cross and literally loses his life, What he promises is for those who find your life then in Christ and is willing to forsake your sin and repent and turn towards Jesus, you will gain your life. You will gain it eternally. You will have the life in Christ that he has promised for his people. But you have to be willing to lose and forsake our selfish ambition and desire to be slaves of sin. That doesn't mean you can live perfectly and never sin. But we're called to follow Jesus and not entertain sin, even in the name of Christ. Finally, when Jesus says that if anyone is going to serve me, he must follow, and that the Father would honor those who follow him and serve him, what do we understand about Christ? that for the joy set before him, he went to the cross, despising the shame. Who exalted him? Him? 
No, the father exalted him. The father honored him. The father lifted him up to his rightful place, and he reigns with him now. See, it was the father's doing. He was obedient unto death and humility and submission to the will of his father, and it was his father that honored him. And if we find ourselves in him, you know what heaven is? Heaven is simply being where Jesus is. Heaven is not primarily a location. Heaven is being with Jesus where he is. That location is heaven. It's not a place that you could Google map to. It is a person that you follow and draw near. And so the king did this in his earthly ministry, what he has just said, and taught about what defines his kingdom. The principles and the values and the priorities. Reminds me so much of the chorus of the hymn that we sing occasionally. Word hymn writer says, crucified, laid behind a stone, you came to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Now, sometimes we could get lost in the words sometimes and, you know, make it what it's not trying to say, or at least it can seem that way. But clearly, if you're looking at these three verses in John 12, Jesus did do this, and he did this for the glory of his Father, but then for the good of his people, because he is the victorious king. A king that has a different type of kingdom that will overwhelm and overcome and take over every other kingdom. Even as we say this 2,000 years from when this incident took place, those kingdoms are gone. Christ still reigns because he is the victorious king. Now, the big idea for today is this. Jesus, the king of kings, went to the cross as a humble servant to set his people free forever. Jesus, the king of kings, went to the cross as a humble servant to set his people free forever. I want to share now a couple of, a few applications for us to consider. If we are looking at Jesus as the king of kings, and he is the king of the Jews, he is the king of the Gentiles, and he is the king victorious of all, then it's important for us to learn the king's way, It's important for us to understand the king's world. And it's also vital for us to know the king's will. The king's way, the king's world, and the king's will. What is the king's way? Zechariah 9 painted it pretty clearly for us. But the king's way, those who follow him, is reflected in humble servanthood. How else can you find glory in the cross? How else can you find glory and be lifted up in an instrument of execution? It is because if glory to God is found in humble servanthood, then the means by which God had called Jesus to die, to bear the shame of sinners, to bear the wrath 
of a righteous and perfect God, that way is not only right, but that way is the way of the king. It is greater than people and institutions. It is greater than what seems to be appropriate or honoring or helpful. God's greatness and his deliverance in his plan of salvation and redemption works through humble servanthood. We're all called to bear the cross of Christ, but that's not because we're bearing the cross that he bore, it's because our Savior did. Humble servanthood is the king's way. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the writer reminds the readers, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Servanthood is the way that then not only pleases God, but that makes us near to God in his heart. And this is a call for us to actually encourage one another in this. And this is then a call to the church. Because you don't expect those who follow or worship a different king to desire this. But this is a call for the church to pursue humble servanthood. Now, it is important to know then, what is this king's world? You notice how with the Jews and then with the Greeks, how they were viewing who Jesus should be as king? They were viewing it from a very earthly perspective. And I think that's where they missed it. They were very narrow in their expectations and their criteria for who Jesus needed to be. Why? Because if he was the king of the Jews, then he needed to be this earthly king that would liberate God's people from the tyranny of the Romans and was able to bring in a political regime that then would put the Jews on top. Well, that's so earthly. Doesn't mean that some of those things aren't good or maybe helpful or desired, especially if you've been in persecution or you've been in occupation for a while. But that ends, doesn't it? And if you were a king to the Gentiles, let's say maybe the expectation is that he would be greater than the current Roman emperor, that he would extend his empire even farther, and that he would bring about prosperity and peace, or whatever it is that a particular human king could bring. But that's still earthly. And I don't think any of the residents or the rulers of our previously mighty empires, some of which expanded you know, a good like, you know, continent, if you look at world history, I don't think they ever thought that their time would end. Who would think that? But the problem is that it's earthly, and that's it. It ends because people end. It ends because we're sinful human beings that are selfish in nature, and that any government that we produce or make is gonna meet, most likely, a human end. So we have to be mindful of the fact that earthly kingdoms will pass and that the king's world is greater than just kingdoms with earthly descriptions and dimensions. The Jews and Gentiles, their views were too narrow. And sometimes ours can be too. Now, don't forget, in Revelation, as 
Christians are receiving a glimpse of the future, one of the things that happens as the seventh trumpet is being blown is this declaration, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Kingdom of the world, as is mentioned here, consists of all of our earthly kingdoms. All of those will fold into the kingdom of the Christ. So let's always keep our eyes on that, even as we strive to be responsible and active citizens where God has put us. Let's keep our eyes on the fact that earthly victories always have a limit and that earthly politics always has a timeline, but that God's kingdom was always meant to transcend those things. God's kingdom is greater than all those things. I don't think we would go to heaven and talk about how great America was. I don't think we would care. But even then, we need to be responsible and proactive citizens. And we want to be a part of making the instrument of God to uphold righteousness and to punish evil to be something that certainly would please him. But we need to have limits in our expectations and our hopes because it is not the king's world to be limited to this world. Finally, there's the king's will. I know Jesus is coming out. He is marching forward on a humble donkey, but he is being recognized in all the ways in which he welcomes right now in this incident. You know, this commonality that he's the king to the Jews and the king to the Greeks, that's how we should then see what the king's will is. That he leaves to his disciples and he leaves to his people, the church, this privilege and this call and this mandate to make disciples through the preaching of the gospel, through the discipling of the saints, and through just being salt and light in the communities where God has placed his people. That is the king's will, even as he ushers in his response to God's will in humility and towards the cross. So when we just commissioned this group of YSMP missionaries, please don't think that we're just sending out 20 of our people and that the rest of us are just vacationing at home or doing whatever it is, or busy with school or busy with work. Please realize that we are descenders and that we pray, support, and walk with them and that we have a responsibility to receive them back. But let's not even stop there. How about instead of sending out 20 people, how about recognizing that the king's will is to build his kingdom and his kingdom are his people and his people are ones who have chosen to forsake their lives to follow the king. How about all of us consider ourselves being sent today? Where are you going to after church? Somewhere. What are you going to do this week? Something. So how about we send 20 people to Kienta, and how about we keep 400 people here and recognize that we're sent? Because that is the king's will, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to tell people about this greater king that we follow 
in that we know who loves us and who walks with us. That's the reason why we're doing Summer Spark. But that's not the only thing we're doing if we're all sent. So recognizing the king's will really steers and guides us to how we then choose to live when we walk out these double doors. The king's will is disciple making. It is missions locally and globally. It is church planting. It is evangelism with your neighbors. It is simply sharing Christ and building relationships with those that God has put into your life. That is the king's will. They're not the only ones. They're the sent ones to Kienta. The rest of us, we can choose as well to obey the king's will. This past weekend, not this weekend, but last weekend, the Unicoi got together and they had a retreat. The theme was true community. I saw some pretty amazing things. I was up there for about a few hours. Uh, wonderful sharing and just this closeness among um, the students and, and the counselors and everything else too. It was wonderful. But then I want to end with this. I've seen so much this week in terms of just a lot of love. There's been just a lot of love. You can't stay away from it. It's been great, okay? True community has been truly impactful. But I challenge you with this. True community has a purpose. True community is not so that you could only, not that I'm saying you are, but it's not so that you could have one week or two weeks of wonderful memories and then it's on to the next thing, on to my school, on to my internship, on to my whatever, homework. True community has a purpose because true community serves the king, the king. True community is the evidence of that king's rule. True community is the beauty of that king's laws. True community is what this world needs. And it points then to a dying and sinful and lost world of Christ, the Savior, who rescues, who loves, who pursues his people and are calling all the time for sinners to repent and to follow him. True community is worth it because it reflects the king's way in the king's world and accomplishes the king's will. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much, God, for this morning and for letting us, even through this message, participate a little bit in the celebration that, you know, if we had a time machine, we definitely wouldn't want to miss this, of Christ coming into Jerusalem and this prophecy fulfilling, but yet royal, mighty, beautiful, and humble way. Father, even as we look back, then help us to look ahead and help us to consider how it is that we truly are following Jesus as the king. Father, that he is greater than all of our earthly kings, that he is closer than our closest friend, that he is more faithful than any status or institution or fame that we may acquire or have in this life. So God, please help us to draw near to Jesus and help us to lean and depend and trust in his work for us. It's not what we have to do for him 
so that we could be saved, but it's how we may live for him because we have trusted in him and he has saved us through his death and resurrection. We thank you, Lord. Draw us near. Help us to know the King. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.